So uh, we, we've been doing a series on, on time and just centering ourselves on the verse from the Psalms, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I've been asking people to come and share um, a wise thought. And I had uh, the idea to ask my wife to share because she's very wise. Uh, so if Mandy, if you could come up, she had a, a, a story that I wanted her to share as I thought about this idea of, of numbering our days. Hi, everyone. So, uh, yes, Brian wanted me to share this story. It happened to me 15 years ago in September. Um, so that was actually a few months before I met Brian. Um, I was dating someone else. Spoiler alert, did not work out. Um, <laughs> but I was leaving his house um, late, late for me, midnight. And um, he lived in Sierra Madre. I was driving to Santa Clarita, which is, I was living with my parents at the time. And um, I was driving on the 210. Um, and um, I had already developed at this point, I was in my mid-20s. If you ask anyone in my family, not a stellar reputation for driving long distances or even short distances without getting sleepy. Um, so it was late and I was driving home and um, I was singing along to a song on the radio, trying to stay awake, and at some point, I fell asleep. And um, I think I startled awake right before, but I hit someone. Um, I was in the far left lane of the 210. I spun across all the lanes of traffic and ended up on the side of the hill uh, off the 210. Um, and a lot of that is really fuzzy and I still don't know a lot of what happened. Um, thank the Lord for insurance that just handles the whole thing. Um, but I, so I was standing on the hill, kind of near McClay is the exit if you know the 210. And uh, I had OnStar in my car, which I don't even know if that's still a thing, but I had that. And so they called me uh, and because my airbags had deployed and asked if I needed assistance, and I said yes. So the police came and once they got to the side of the hill, as they're like pulling my car down front with a tow truck, um, the policeman kept asking me if I was okay. And I was standing there and he asked me in my mind, he asked me several times to the point where I was like, is, is, do I have a bone sticking out somewhere? And he's like, and I don't realize it. So I kept kind of like feeling my face and feeling my arms. And I definitely had some seatbelt burns and some bruising, um, but I was standing there um, and was overall fine. But uh, what I really remember doing is I couldn't see who I hit. I couldn't see any car that was pulled over. I couldn't see anyone. And so what I was really dazed about was, um, did I hurt someone? Did I hurt someone? Did I kill someone? I, I really didn't know. And, um, you know, it, it was that, that piece of it for me is, is more clear that I, I couldn't, I remember saying to the policeman also, yeah, I, I think it was in the construction zone. Cause I, I don't know how I rear-ended one, someone, that must have been slowing down, and I rear-ended them somehow. And the policeman kept saying, "Like, no, there's no, there's no construction zone here. There's nothing here that would have been slowing people down." So I, I don't really know all of how everything transpired, but um, you know, so it's just definitely one of those moments in your life that um, I mean, I, I 
pretty much walked away unscathed. Uh, and the, the policeman also said to me, when he kept asking me if I was okay, he said, you know, normally when we're getting cars down from here, it's not good for the person in the car. And, uh, you know, so, so for me, this is a story that I can tell that I don't actually think about every day. Um, but if it had gone really almost any other way, <laughs> I probably would think about it every day, either how I got super traumatically hurt or died, or that I killed someone else. Um, and so then even if I'm physically fine, there's such a long-term impact of that. So um, when, I, when it does come to mind, and I do think of it, you know, I think about, wow, I, had really any other detail played out a little different, how different my life might be. And I mean, I wouldn't, if it had played out almost any other way, I probably wouldn't even be here talking to you, standing in front of you. So, um, you know, it definitely is a by the grace of God moment because there's no other way for me to explain that I kind of just walked away, um, like that I didn't get hit by someone else as I spun across all the lanes. Like, I mean, there's all those things that you kind of think about the what ifs. So, um, you know, it's just a just one of those moments that it is life changing, even though I don't think about it all the time, but it is life changing to have a moment like that where you feel like everything could have changed on a dime in a really bad way um, and how I'm very, very grateful that it did play out that way and that I could just mostly walk away unscathed and, um, and not impact someone else's life so dramatically also because I just fell asleep. So, um, so yeah, that's, it. that's my story. Thank you for sharing. That's great. I know that was not an easy story to share, so thank you uh, for sharing. I, I, was, I wanted to have her share that because I, it's likely if we were to go around the room, there'd be some other stories like that. I know Grant talks about how he has like nine lives in his life, so you can talk to him uh, sometime about some of his, his near-death experiences. Uh, but it's likely that's, that we have some of these, that we have experienced that. Maybe it was something that was uh, close to that. And I, I think about that, and it's very uh, personal to me because as Manny mentioned, this was in September. We met in January. She had broken up with the guy. Um, he actually was a rocket scientist, so when you put our IQs together, it's like pretty high, actually. Um, and so she, she broke with him a couple months later and I met her in January. And I think about like how hard life can be at times, because it is, there's like struggles, you're all dealing with things, I'm dealing with things, there's just things that are hard for us as we're going through uh, life, but just the impact that we all have on each other, right? And you just kind of don't know. And you also don't know about just how sacred and, and precious life is. And unfortunately that things can happen that are hard. And so scripture invites us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom to recognize the, the sacredness of the lives that we have. We don't think about it as often as people have uh, throughout human history, I believe. So in the 1800s, there's a poem that it's likely you're familiar with the first part of it. Um, it's now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. 
but if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take it. It's like, you know, you, you could recite that with me. You guys know that. But actually it continues. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span and cruel death is always near. So frail a thing is man. And this is something that in the 1800s in around England, um, parents would say to their kids. And just imagine that, right? Like, Cruel death is always near, so the frail thing is, man, you know, night, honey, see you later. You know, that just doesn't sound like what, what we say very often. But this is a time when life expectancy was, was lower, and it was just a little bit more of a reality than it is now. And Scripture invites us to recognize that you aren't going to live forever. This is a theme that happens throughout uh, Scripture. Just one example, the book of James. James says, Now listen, you who say, uh, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will... We'll live and we'll do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James is the brother of Jesus, and the book of James is uh, toward the end of the New Testament, and it's a very practical book. If you ever want to be challenged in your faith, read the book of James. People call it the New Testament version of Proverbs, which just has very practical things about life. Be very careful then. Just don't pretend and don't think that you're in control, that things are just going to go on forever because you don't know when your moment's going to be. And that's hard and it's a sobering reality, but it's very important for us as we think about living with wisdom. Remember what Adam and Eve during the temptation in, in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 one of the things that the serpent says in this interaction um, is, you surely won't die, right? If you, if you have the fruit, your eyes are going to be open. God's holding out on you. No, surely you won't die. And I think with all the things that we have that are at our fingertips, the technology that we have, the blessings that we have, we can start to think that we can be immortal. There's an article in 2015 in the Washington Post uh, that said this, a few serious scholars suggest that by 2050, some humans will become amortal, meaning they could always die by accident, but not by disease. For men of science, death is not an inevitable destiny, but merely a technical problem. The death of death is fast approaching, fast being a matter of decades or maybe more, but sooner or later, science will kill the grim reaper and future generations will look back on us and wonder what it was like knowing the end was always coming. We will, in doubt, uh, we will no doubt vanquish death. In the meantime, we'll have to deal with it. So this was written in 2015 in the Washington Post. It was before COVID, so maybe it was a little bit arrogant, right? <laughs> I, we have this arrogance. We can kind of, kind of just push it off to the distance. And we don't say that kind of poetry to our kids, and probably that's healthy. But I mean, we, we don't have the, the opportunity for it to be around us often. And it used to be that in previous generations, let's say that your family wanted chicken, that was work, right? And you had to kill a chicken. And they have the saying, you know, like a chicken with its head cut off. I've never seen that before, but we still say it. And like, we, if you were to like, you know, actually want that meat, 
And we eat a lot more meat than ever in human history uh, because of that. But if you wanted that meat, it was, it was a lot of work. You had to kill the chicken. You had to, like, take all the feathers. I don't even know how to do it. I have never done it uh, before. And now we just have chicken nuggets, which doesn't look like a chicken at all. Except for every once in a while when McDonald's accidentally, like, sticks the head in a nugget. You know, then the picture goes viral. Um, but we don't really connect to that. We don't spend a lot of time, you know, getting our hands dirty, thinking about the, the realities around us, that, that life is short, that you and I, it's just a mist. So the question that I would have for you, and it's a question that I deal with myself, like, how, how do you deal with that? Because oftentimes, uh, for me, it's when I'm not, like, dealing with the reality of my limits that I get most in trouble. When I think about the limits of, you know, trying to keep everybody happy at church, like it's impossible. When I try to think about like, oh, I'm going to like do this and I'm going to be all these, these places, I'm going to do all these things. It's, it's impossible uh, for me to actually do that. And when I try to like push past my limits and try to pretend like those things aren't there, it's when I get in the most trouble. And then sometimes you come face to face with your limits and, and the, the pain of life and that life is, is difficult. And it's in that moment, partly due to the affluence that we enjoy, um, that we have a chance to numb ourselves to it. Because life is hard and it's a struggle and it's difficult at times. And so we numb ourselves with alcohol, we numb ourselves with drugs, we numb ourselves with food, we can go on and on. We numb ourselves by just watching Netflix instead of having a real conversation. And we don't face the realities of death. There's a pastor named Chris Sanchez who says this, we live in America where we know how to make pain go away. We have medicine, food, sex, entertainment, and wine, all of which are amazing and wonderful gifts from God until you start to use them like medicine. And pain at some point demands to be felt. And this isn't a sermon about like not using some pain medication at times, or you know, if you're if you're pregnant, not using an epidural. I was there for two of those. Like I think I'd recommend that one personally. But uh, there's going to be some pain that you're going to have to feel. And it's going to be physical at times, and that's really difficult, but there's also going to be spiritual pain, emotional pain. And the problem is when you numb yourself, whatever that happens to be, whenever you numb yourself, you can't just numb the pain. It numbs everything. And some of it needs to be faced. And sometimes we need to recognize that pain can be a teacher, and it's not one that we would choose, but there are things that we've learned through hard seasons of life that were beneficial and important. When you think of Christian mystics throughout history, maybe you're familiar with them, uh, maybe uh, you aren't, but we love to quote them. You see their quotes around uh, from time to time, but it's, it's people who generally looked at, you know, somewhat how the world was and how the church was and said, you know, I, I want a, a deeper faith experience. One such example is Teresa of Avila. Here's, here's a picture of, of her. She was a nun who decided that um, 
the monastic order in that time was not as, as strict as, as it needed to be. So she started reforming uh, some of the monasteries. And so she took a vow of, of poverty and did all of these extremely difficult things. And she has written some things that are still super powerful today. It was written in the 1500s and you can still read some of her writings. One of them is called uh, The Interior Castle, where she writes about what it is to experience depth of relationship with God. And she writes about it in such an interesting perspective that it comes from like actually facing up to the hard things of life, facing up to your limits and at times in like extreme ways going through it. And so we have other ones like uh, Thomas of Assisi and, and, or Francis of Assisi, not Thomas, Francis of Assisi. And it, he, he's, has, he's quoted often. He's a, a very influential person still uh, to this day. But one experience that, that he had uh, was called the stigmata, where as he was having this, this powerful experience of prayer with God, he actually had the, the scarring that Jesus did appear on his hands and on his feet. And people say this is one of the most like, actual verifiable miracles in recent history. There's evidence that it actually happened, which you can read about. Maybe you think about it as true or not. But he has said some unbelievable things, things that still shape our world today. And it's because he experienced pain. And he didn't run from it. And he went through it. These other Christian mystics, they invited it in some ways. Because you can't just numb the pain. And as you think about your life and, and your limits and all of those things that we like to just push to the side and not really like think about very often, the book of James would say, your life is just a mist, you don't know. So beware of the pride that says, yeah, I'll do that in a couple months. I'll get around to it. James says the things that you know that are good, that you ought to do, that God has put in your heart, do it now. Because you just don't know. Think about the life and, and ministry of, of Jesus. Jesus was known as somebody who hung out at parties, right? That's the accusations that people have of him, that he is, is hanging out uh, with people who uh, people thought you shouldn't hang out with. And he's having these, these conversations and, and these interactions. And then there's the first miracle of Jesus. When Jesus is at a party and the wine is running out, and in that time, that would have been a horrendous thing. I mean, I guess it's still somewhat bad today. But in that time, like if, if you were to run out of wine, and specifically for uh, the bride, this is the only moment in her life, because it was a very patriarchal, male-dominated society. This is the only moment in her life that this woman would have had. And if it was known around town that, you know, hers was the wedding that the wine ran out, like that's not what you wanted. And so Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, we have this problem here. And Jesus is like, hey, it's not my problem. But then Jesus' mom is like, no, do what he says, basically. It's this weird, it's very weird interaction that he has uh, with, with his mom. And then Jesus does, does this in the Gospel of John. This is his first miracle. Nearby stood sticks, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said, to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that it becomes the best wine ever. The taste test comes back. And usually they put out the two buck chuck first. 
or they put the two buck truck out last because you start when people like still have their senses to the maybe and you start with the good stuff first. But wow, you've saved the best wine for last. And what's craziest to me about that story is that it's 150 gallons of wine. It's staggering, right? I mean, it seems like Jesus is that, that roommate you had freshman year of college who was always rolling around a keg. You're like, well, how'd you, how'd you get that? My, my freshman year, we had a guy like that. It was really funny. He, he came in the first day of school. I went to Pepperdine, if you didn't know, and he said, did you know this is a Christian school? And I was studying to be a pastor, and there's a huge cross on the hill. So, like, I mean, I don't, and then it, he clearly didn't do his own application because there was a lot of questions about it in the application. Did you know this was a Christian school? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I was actually aware of it. That's one of the reasons uh, why I chose it. But maybe, maybe you, you had somebody like that in your dorm or something, and that's, this is a staggering amount of wine. Like, you can't look past it. And some, like, biblical people will be like, well, it might not be wine. It might, no, no, it's wine. That's what it is. And it's 150 gallons of it. So Jesus basically says, all right, let's keep this party going. This is an unbelievable thing that Jesus does in this moment. So I know, I know that alcohol can be a struggle uh, for you, but I don't believe that, that drinking is a sin. I believe drinking light beer is a sin, but I don't know about, I don't know about <laughs> I, but you just got to be careful with it. Because Jesus does this and comes onto the scene with this like unbelievable miracle where it's like, bam, that's a whole lot of wine. And then he's known as having a drink with some people. They call him a drunkard. And I, I don't believe that that was actually true, but he was having a drink. But what's interesting to notice is when Jesus turns that down, on the cross, there's a moment when he's offered some wine and a little bit of mixture that as he's on the cross, it would have numbed the pain a bit. There's a Bible scholar who talks about this. According to old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain. When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused it, choosing to endure with full consciousness the sufferings appointed for him. So Jesus, I believe, isn't anti-alcohol. But I do believe that when it comes to enduring some kind of pain, he says, no. Because this is what I've been called to endure. So when there's a party a wedding, celebrate. But when you're having a drink or a few too many drinks, you're watching a few too many shows, reading just a bit too much food, and I could go on. Sometimes we have to ask this the question, like, am, am I doing this in a moment of celebration, or am I doing this to numb something that I need to endure a bit? And those questions are hard to figure out. What, what, what is that? What is the celebration? What is it when I may be numbing a little bit? But I think these are questions that we have to ask and wrestle with. 
Because there's just pain that we are going to deal with. And we can push it to the side and pretend that it's not there as I was preparing this, this sermon. I, I thought about Mandy's story and her sharing about that experience, and it just gets, gets emotional for me to think about that. Like, that could have changed, that moment could have changed my entire life. I wouldn't have even known about it. There's great power, I think, in not just whenever there's things that are difficult for us turning to something else. Because ultimately, I believe that strength is found to endure these things through deeper relationship with Christ. And there's times when Christ gives us the strength to continue to endure. There's a book written called The Brothers K by a guy named David James Duncan, and it's uh, uh, an American retelling of the Brothers Karamazov. And so he writes about this, this father. The father's a main character in the story. And he's a washed up minor league baseball player who's pretty bitter about how his whole life has worked out. He works every day at the paper mill. And he really doesn't like his life or his job. And he gets off work and uh, he picks up his son. And the son is, is just riding with him in the car. And they start to bicker a little bit about something. And the son starts to defend um, his mother, uh, the wife of this washed-up baseball player. And the father pushes back a little bit, and then the son pushes back a little bit, and the father gets more and more upset before he starts to point out some of the wife's flaws to his son. And they go back and forth a little bit more until the son says, yeah, well, at least she fights. You stopped fighting to laugh and to love. You're a dead man walking around. You stopped fighting for us. And as I think about that idea, I just don't want to become that person. Because I've seen people like that because of the circumstances of their lives, because of things that have gone on. And it's understandable, like they're dealing with really hard stuff. They've just stopped fighting. I hope for me and I hope for you that as we endure pain, that sometimes it's really hard, sometimes we need communities around us, we need people to share our burdens and share those things with. I hope that as we experience the pain and difficulty of life, that we just never stop fighting. Because as hard as it is to, to struggle at times, and to deal with pain, I think on the other side, it's I think about people who have just somewhat given in and given up. You aren't living into your deeper purpose. I know I don't. So may we understand that there are times to celebrate where Jesus says, all right, here we go, 150 gallons of wine, let's go. And I hope in those moments you truly celebrate well. You're present in that moment. But when things are hard, and when sometimes you're turning 
somewhere else for support and strength instead of from God. I hope you remember that there are moments when we need to let pain teach us some things. And may it never be said about us that we just stopped fighting. Let's stand and read together the passage that we're trying to memorize. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. One more time. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. God, I, I know for myself, this is a, a challenging concept and an idea to think about. And I pray just for myself that I would celebrate well in those, those precious sacred moments that we do get a chance to just be with people we love around a table, just celebrating important things. I pray that I would celebrate well. But I also pray that I'd be careful for the ways that I numb myself from the limits that I have. And I numb myself from pain that I, I need to experience. In those moments when I come to my limits, God, I pray that you would be with me as I recognize the, the things that you can do in that season, in that difficult moment. Be with us all as we try to, to never stop fighting. Your son, Jesus, and I pray. Amen.